0: Hey everybody welcome to In The Weeds podcast. This week zooming in we have award-winning chef, author and all-round good guy, Mr. Paul Askew. We have a lot in common from our geographical similarities living on Merseyside and with such great content, conversation, topics I decided to split Paul in two. In the first part we discuss Paul's life of travel, his pull towards the sea and how his influences palate and cooking today leading on to him coming full circle back to a spiritual home opening the iconic art school restaurant and cellars and learning about its culinary ethos this episode like the first recording in terms of isolation and while this continues we will be airing an episode every thursday as well as paul's second part next saturday so stay home keep positive listen to some podcasts and please enjoy Welcome to In The Weeds podcast, episode two, and we're still in strange times and times of isolation, but I'm delighted tonight through Zoom and the the modern technology that we have to join tonight with award-winning chef, businessman, author, chef patron of the art school restaurant and cellars, and the art of wine in Liverpool, Mr. Paul Askew. How are you doing? I'm good, Matt. How are you? Well, I say good, we're sort of
1: restrained but good at the same time, aren't we? Bizarre, absolutely bizarre, yeah.
0: I've been better, but you know, we're we're looking forward. Um, It was great to have you on anyway, I appreciate your time. Not Uh, at all, it's a pleasure, pleasure to see you here. I think think we obviously both have a a, a large affiliation with with Liverpool and I think that obviously we're going to probably get around to talking about that a little bit. So I think for the audience... Obviously, we talk about travel and and culture and stuff in this. I think from yeah. seeing where you've gone from a small boy to now, we'll probably if we talk about that, we'll probably bring it all up. I think.
1: Yeah, uh, well, I I think like um, like a lot of great things that have happened in Liverpool and things that have been brought to Liverpool. I was I was brought here age four because uh, my dad was in the Merchant Navy, so I was brought by the sea. Um, obviously, a great maritime history in the city and. My father had uh, he'd been working for Blue Star Line, which was part of the Vesti group um, ironically, he used to bring beef from Argentina, lamb from New Zealand, apples from Washington, bringing food into the uh, into the port of Liverpool. and um, you know our first arri- say our first arrival in Liverpool because we've been away and come back many times <laughs> because of his uh, position so um, really, it was the maritime history that brought us, but it, it was even then. It was food that was the connection between me, Liverpool, and my family, if you see what I mean. So it started even then. And then by age seven, we we were off to London. My dad had got a um, a promotion and had come ashore by then, and he'd been made the uh, director of operations for the company in London. And then from there, he got posted to Dubai. So at age 11, I was off to Dubai um, to go to school. He was over there doing the container port. Um, literally from you know building it and, and establishing Blue Star Line there, and what happened basically was my probably my first interaction with you know my first spice market, my first fish market, and I can still when I walk down a, a street or, or walk into a shop like Matters or something, and you pick up those smells, it's it's one of those memory transportation moments, you know, where I'm s- still walking down the souk in in Dubai at age 11. So I, I think because Part of his job when he came ashore was to entertain the captains and crew that came into town. Uh, also, he was a legendary, uh, typical seafarer. He was a master mariner, so he'd been a captain at sea for many years. And he was sort of well-known for his hospitality, shall we say. <laughs> <laughs> typical old sea dog. He, 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 liked, uh, he liked to entertain. He liked to have a few drinks and tell stories. And my mum was actually a very good cook. So in a way our whole household was set up to be a very hospitable place. And and, all right, yes, it was done for business reasons, but it was also like an open house all the time. You know, so people were coming in and having drinks, having food, joining us for, you know. And it just, I think that was the the start of it for me. But Dubai then, you know, there was no high-rise buildings. There was just the creek and maybe one big hotel. I think it was the Sheraton or something at a bowling alley in the bottom used to see arabs hitching up the dish dash to throw yeah. the bulb down there and <laughs> all sorts of funny memories but um and then from there from dubai we, we he got posted to Singapore yeah and my first interaction with Singapore probably even bigger at the time um, was probably when I was 13 14 and I think you know there it was a real moment of realization for me about what food culture really is and I, you know I, I remember going to a little stand for the first time when I was about 14 and this guy probably only 11 or 12 years old himself was there cooking satay on the side of the street on a curb and it was still to this day one of the best things i've ever tasted yeah. you know and it just it just shows you really what you know when you're in a place and you taste the identity of that place and the ingredients you know of that place it, it it's all part and parcel of, of of visiting a country visiting a you know a, a culture of people you know so it's it's been a. It was an early start for me, and that was absolutely what got me hooked in this crazy game that we're in. <laughs> <laughs>
0: and you th- do you think moving around and traveling that young has definitely, you know, obviously changed your palate as well? But do you think it's kind of changed, moved you forward early on, and, and seeing different things? It, for example, I, I, I would have no idea that, without looking into it that you, you weren't actually from Liverpool. This is actually Sunderland originally. When you you were four, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, so I was born in Sunderland,
1: um, and then we all, the whole family was from Sunderland. My dad was actually on board a ship at age 14 on a training ship, um, HMS Conway, ironically, which was moored Mm. off uh, off Conway, and then they used to sail it up the Mersey and go to Birkenhead Priory, and that was part of his. So his first introduction to the Wirral and to Liverpool was when he was 14 as well. So it's quite, it's funny, there's been massive connections with our family, um, with Merseyside and, and Sunderland all the way through, you know, so
0: maybe yeah you've got the, you've had the pull it's eventually pulled you in so when when you, <laughs> when you're in Singapore, I'd imagine obviously Singapore again is something that's now like a, a you know finance mecca now, and it's moved on a lot what was How was it when you were there um it was it was
1: still i I still considered it to be you know it felt like being in a capital city of, of Asia really it felt like the New York of Asia even then probably but but I think you know Hong Kong was probably a slightly more powerful at that time. It was still part of the British Empire, I think, at that time. I'm, getting, I'm showing my age now, <laughs> um, but it was certainly before um, the independence was given away and, and China took over. But, but Singapore, I just think, it, because of its colonial background, you've got an amazing melting pot of, you know, uh, Malay cuisine, Chinese cuisine, Indian cuisine, Indonesian cuisine. Then you've got colonial British mixed in with that. Then you've got Japanese. Then it's just it's just incredible, and and although they don't have a lot of their own produce because it's such a tiny island with such high population, all of the areas around like Indonesia, Malaysia, and uh, have amazing produce. So uh, it was sort of drummed into me that you know we go to the market, we pick up the stuff, we come back, we only buy what's best at the market, and then we make something for dinner. And and even then, I was sort of able to work with a couple of local people who would come and help my mum and dad for. If there were big parties or whatever, and I was just obsessed with being in the kitchen even then, so it, it just shows you, doesn't it? What you're exposed to at an early age certainly uh, shapes us and resonates with us, and it's, it's never left me that for sure, you know. So there's still a little bit of Southeast Asia in there and Middle Eastern in there with me.
0: You bring a lot, do you bring it into your cooking
1: now? I do, yeah. I think um, what I've noticed as, I, as I've got a little bit older, a little bit more mature in, in my style of food is that every now and again I'll bring, I'll bring out what I refer to as my old friends. And when I, when I talk about them, they're like old palettes of, of, of flavor combinations or, or marinades or seasonings that I've learned along the way. And I'll, I'll adapt it to local produce that we get from Merseyside. And as you know, there is many, many fantastic ones. Um, and I'll just give it a little, you know, a little Singaporean touch or a little Dubai touch, or there was also a little piece of North America in me as well. Cause I, I went on traveling myself after I became a qualified chef. I went up to upstate New York for a couple of years as well. so you know this is for me this is what gives a chef a repertoire of of dishes and a and a palate that is hopefully slightly different to the norm you know and i hope i've I've sort of stuck to my guns in that and although I'm a classically french trained chef i've I've kept to my own roots and and followed the flavors that have have picked up along the way, and I think that's
0: that's the way it should be you know. I think that's the best way you can you, you can pick up produce and and cook it like that, you know, local market. And it's interesting to see now now we're in these times, I'd say people actually here referring back to that, where you Absolutely. know, looking more local and maybe it's kind of bringing something something back in or that that was maybe lost a little bit here, you know. And um, so, it'd be good to see. But I, I think that's that's definitely the way forward. Oh, for sure. I think. You know,
1: Liverpool, because of its maritime history and because it was the destination where all these ingredients would be would come into, you know, whether it be spices, whether it be rum, whether it be wine, whether it be brandy, meat, cotton, whatever it was, there was always an amazing selection of of, of great produce, but also of nationalities in Liverpool. So we are, in many ways, we're a little mini mini New York or mini Singapore. You know, the population is... is sort of tiny in comparison to those places i know but we do have those little pockets of of culture and and styles and influences that i think make us a very very interesting city and i think that's one of the reasons why the you know the the food scene has exploded so much in the last 10-15 years it has because all those styles and and influences have
0: been reignited you know i think well i think port city i'm a massive fan of port cities i think once the war Definitely in in your DNA. I think the water and port cities, I get kind of dragged to it. And like you say, I think they all, it's like a melting pot of cultures, and and I love it. Yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah. So what happened there? My,
1: my, my mother and father stayed there for the rest of their career. So they they were in Singapore almost for well almost fifteen years actually. They were there fourteen years. Um, but it was it became needy for me to come back and finish school in the UK because well there was a, (laughs) at one point there was a danger. I was going off to boarding school, which I didn't really fancy. Um, and so what happened was I came back, went back to school in the UK, lived with my sister, and then I would go out to Singapore every Christmas, Easter, summer holiday type thing. you know, that's the way, so I had the Singapore connection, but I had the schooling on the Wirral. Um, so I, I, I actually did better in my O levels than I was expected to. Mm. And my father at that point sort of became a bit of a sea captain, Royal Marine type, uh, Sergeant Major bloke, yeah. and decided that he wanted me to stay on and do my A-Levels, whereas I wanted to leave at that point to do my uh, training. Um, so basically, with me being the rebellious type as I was at the time, I played a lot of rugby. I worked in a local restaurant and partied quite hard for a couple of years. <laughs> and then I went to college when I was eighteen and did very badly in my A levels. So, yeah. so I sort of went there in the end anyway. You party,
0: don't
1: you? I sure, I sure yeah. do. Yeah. Work, my my <laughs> motto was always be work hard, play harder. Is I think the way you got to go. Yeah. So, but no, I, I went to um, upstate New York. I, I went when I, I'd probably been out of college about a year and a half, and um, it was during the time. This will make you laugh now because. It, it'll it'll come full circle all this food but it still makes me laugh now but it was at a time in the uk when you could literally walk into any restaurant and you'd see prawn cocktail well done steak chasseur and black forest gatto on every menu in the uk and it was just so destroying because of course i'd been away and i'd seen uh, because i'd traveled quite a lot from an early age I, I knew that there was a lot better out there <laughs> and I've just, i just at that point become obsessed with the Rue brothers. So I bought this book called new classic cuisine, which was basically the dawn of nouvelle cuisine in, in the UK. And, and what it was teaching us was that it, that food was not just about fuel, you know, it wasn't just about putting something in your body and, and having a bit of a, you know, a bit of steak and a bit of fish and a bit of this. It was actually an art form and, and the whole process and, and the whole, I don't know, I, I, I suppose I became obsessed with the formality of it, but particularly the artistry. That's what I loved about it. I loved the presentation and I loved I loved the processes involved in, in in classic food. And I think, you know, when I was forced to sort of do this humdrum menu, as I saw it, the same thing every day, I sort of went to my boss and I was like, look, unless you're going to let us put some of our own dishes on there. there was only a sous chef at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I can't do this. I'm going to have to go. So he was getting menus sent to him from head office and there was no no leeway in that so i just said well do you know what bollocks to this i'm i'm getting on a plane i'm going over to to america i had a a really determined thing that i didn't want to go to london because i've written about 20 letters to all the top hotels and top restaurants in london uh asking for a commie chef job and I had very good grades from college had great experience from a as a young guy and Um, every one of them was a no and I was told later by a good friend uh, who I still know now actually that at the time they weren't recruiting anybody with a a Liverpool postcode or a Merseyside postcode on their letters so it just showed that at that time there were so many barriers even the north-south divide then it's, it's obviously it's improved a lot but it's still there so I was determined probably to my detriment as it turns out I think in the long run but you know hey ho um, but I decided to go to New York, not London. And I had a friend, uh, playing professional football, living in upstate New York. And I went and shared an apartment with him, got a job as a sous chef in uh, a place owned by a, a fine Jewish gentleman called Ernest Feldman. who taught me a lot about restaurants and, and, um, and about business actually. And I learned a lot about people because it was a very multi, multi multinational brigade. And I was sort of the the chief whip of the of the brigade and had to keep them all in line so it was great times great times but it's um it's a shame i had to go and do that instead of being able to do that in my own city in my own country at that time but it was unless you were working in the gavroche or something you were you know there wasn't much going on at the time i guess yeah it's, be- it's beautiful upstate new york as well i think people don't really incredible yeah yeah the cat, i mean the catskill mountains we were actually a bit further north um Albany uh, was the was the city and we lived just outside of Albany. Um, but this guy owned about seven or eight restaurants and, and he had a great outside catering business. So one minute I'd be in Saratoga Racetrack doing a, ironically, actually funny enough, doing a dinner for the jockey club uh, at Saratoga for like 500 people. The next minute I'd be in a, uh, a lawyer's house cooking a dinner for, for 12 people. Um, you know, as the, the little English guy Carving a rack of lamb and dressing a lobster in front of them at the table, and, and just because they wanted to hear
0: the accent, and you know, <laughs> it, it, it was diverse as that. It's crazy. So, and what what you how would you find the food scene? Did you get to in New York City much then, or were we too busy? Yeah,
1: well, well, we, we we were busy, but but we every time we got any time off, we would go into the city to uh, enjoy the the nightlife and the the bright right. lights of the city that never sleeps. Obviously. Um, but I became pretty obsessed with. Uh, you probably know it. Um, it's quite a legendary play, Grand Mercy Tavern. I don't know one of Danny Mayer's, uh, yeah. original restaurants that that became a one star in New York City when the book came out. And and what I loved about Grand Mercy was that you could go in, you could go and have a drink, you could go and have brasserie food cooked off a, a wood fired oven or a grill, or you could go and do fine dining or private dining. And it had everything in that one space and. I just remember the service and the style and the whole feel of the place was so hospitable and so warm and and I, it never left me that I wanted to recreate that where, wherever I went. I never. I think I probably use that as a benchmark
0: wherever I've been. Actually, yeah. The I th- the service in New York is, I mean, something else. I think you can yeah. I, When we we do a lot of when we do our training, we specifically. I don't like Americanization so much in service, yeah. but yeah, I think. How it's done in New York, it, it actually does make you feel good. You you come out of the place buzzing about it. I think I think yeah. it's different. Um, I agree. So I agree yeah. It,
1: yeah, yeah, It's it's lovely because there's a couple of couple of guys that used to train. Well, trained who well, I trained at the um, the carriage works. Funny enough, who stayed over in, in New York. Now one guy, Sam Calderbank, is now the the GM at per se for Thomas Keller. Right. So he's a little uh, little scouser who joined us at 19 and went over there about 10 years later. He was with us about five, six years. And, uh, you know, I've been over there a couple of times now to, to a three-star. I mean, Thomas Keller's food for me is off the scale, but but Sam and the, and the service team in there, I've never seen anything like it. It's just absolutely incredible. I think per se and, and uh, 11 Madison Square obviously is probably the best two dining experiences I've had in the world, I have to say.
0: Yeah, I think it moves very quickly though. New York doesn't it? It can change in the... It does. Yeah. Months. Yeah. Must, must be one of the most diverse scenes. Let's say after New York, then that was the time to move back home. Then. Yeah. Well, as you, well as I'm sure everybody knows the,
1: the thing about America, unless you get married and settle down, you, you know, your, your visa runs out, and it's there's not much you can do about it unless you've got a very fancy lawyer. And I didn't. Have, I didn't have much money at the time. So it was definitely time to come back. And I think it was right; it was the right time for me uh, from a family point of view as well. So it, I came back and I, I got a, a job in um, my first sort of independent hotel in the, in the Northwest, which was Wincham Hall in Cheshire North. It doesn't exist anymore. It's, a, it's been turned back into a private residence. But, um, but it was a, a family who, who converted this house into a hotel and restaurant and wanted a sort of their perception of a young book coming back into the, you know, back into the industry, put a bit of energy into it and get behind it. And so they, I foolishly took the chef mission, and I say foolishly, cause I was probably, I must've been 24, 25 or something. Um, and from a cooking point of view, absolutely no problem. I could cook all day long and run that kitchen no problem but of course they wanted me to do the business side of things as well and I think that's the realization for a lot of young chefs and young restaurateurs coming into the industry and that when we go to college and when we train in our first establishments you know we get taught how to make the best cocktail how to put the best piece you know best plate of food out there make it absolutely perfect but what they don't tell you is do you know what you need to take three garnishes off that otherwise you're, you're running at a loss or <laughs> you know your staff cost how much? You, how much is your rotor? And so yeah. this was like quite a quite a shock to the system for me. Or even though I'd done some you know basic accountancy and food costings at college, I hadn't been responsible for it before. So that was two and a half, three years of pretty interesting uh, scrummaging, I would call it, you know? and getting used to running that. You know, do you not. Think- it still happens now. You still see it in young chefs and bartenders and and young managers now
0: still wrestle with that. I think don't we? Yeah, I was gonna. I was gonna actually bring that up with you. I think that if someone asked you, would you say straight away you were a chef? Well, it's interesting. I think I
1: started as a chef, but I think I'm a restaurateur now. Yeah. I think. I think. I think. Probably the reason why I call myself Chef Patron now is that um, I'm the chef, but I'm also the general manager, really. Um, and of course, the financial situation with ownership comes great responsibility. So i think my i'm i'm eternally conflicted i always tell people this it's quite funny to most people but not to, not to me because my conflict with it is with myself at the art school it's because i want it to be the best and i want to give the best service the best ingredients the best food the best wine the best cocktails the best service everything and i want to invest in that but at the same time i want to make a little bit of money and survive and 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 make i've always wanted to make it an exemplar really of of what liverpool is all about and and make a point to our friends in the South that we can do capital city standards. You know, it's, I've always had that ever since those letters came back funnily enough when I was 18, 19, I've never forgiven them for that. Um, and I think, you know, the, 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 the conflict is that, you know, my, my desire is still to go further with investing and, and further with the food and further with the wine list. But at what point do you, do you run it as a business and actually get some money out of there? And and of course, as you get a little bit older and you've got a family who's grown up and and you haven't spent much time at home, these are the these are the conflicts that constantly erode, I think, our industry. and And I think that's why a lot of people drop out of it because you know they they, they give in and and say, "Well, I can't. I'm not going to do that anymore. I can't. I can't be a slave to the to the industry. I have to make the industry work for me."
0: And it's yeah. very it's a very difficult one to do that. I think it's. I think, like you say, no one gets told these things, do they? And and if anything, yeah. restaurants in particular probably have the most variables out of a business there is. Do you know? Uh, it, Absolutely. It, and the margins are so tight. Absolutely. And you're then getting, you know, if you imagine, like you say, you're a young chef, you end up, you know, doing your own business, and and you're getting hit with all this. What's VAT? What do I have to pay this? And every three months, <laughs> you know, <you've> got, it, <laughs> Who, who
1: is this vast man? <laughs> <laughs> who is this? this imaginary man. I know, yeah, it's crazy. It? No, but it, it, yeah. it is. It's exactly that, you know. And um, I see it with young chefs when I'm, I'm at the pass, and I'm I'm looking at these guys, and we've we've changed the menu. You know, maybe it's been running two months, two and a half months, and you can see in their eyes that they've just done the. The 799th uh, guinea fowl or whatever it was, <laughs> and they're desperate for you to change the menu for the next season. Because otherwise they just feel that like production line mentality. Yeah. And the chefs that I'm looking for are the ones who who probably are more more artists and more creative than the than the ones you want just churning out good food. We all, you know, we all want chefs churning out good food, but but the ones I'm sort of recruiting are the ones that are maybe more prone to have something creative some they have to have input they have to have simulation all the time and and i think that's a big issue in our industry at the moment i think we you know we, we've sort of glamorized the trade that much through tv and and the programs that you've well you've been involved with them as well but but you know you, you look at great british menu or something like that and you see those things appearing and the guy the you know a 20 year old chef is watching that thinking that's what it's going to be like when i go and work in the art school well, it can be sometimes, but it can't be all the time because guess what? Do you know how much that dish cut costs to put on that plate? <laughs> you know? And it, it, it's such a hard... It's just relentless, this, this pressure between money and quality and delivery. It's really, really hard, yeah.
0: Yeah, I think you're right, though. TV's got a lot to answer for. And I think not only that, as well as for people outside the industry thinking that they can just go and do it as well. I think that we have, we have a yeah. problem in this industry where... Everyone can be a restaurant or, Oh, I can do that. And, I, and one thing really pissed me off, to be honest with you. You're <laughs> yeah, getting, like, yeah. dentists or people, are, you know, opening restaurants and you're like, oh, man, come on. Do yourself a favour, yeah. yeah oh, I'm going to get this guy to run it. And then, know, fuck it. it just, yeah, you can just see it, it happening because if you don't, like you say, you don't know what goes on behind the scenes and how much you actually yeah. have to live it. You're never actually, you're never off, really. But no. then you've got to no. love it. You gotta love it. It's not that. That's that's the thing about it. That that
1: that is it. And I think I think most people, as you say, that TV. I think well, going back to the TV thing, I think it's done a great thing for us. Mm -hmm. In that the industry needed glamorizing anyway. We were struggling, you know. We when I started being a chef, nobody wanted to talk to the chef. We were the servile wretches who should be back in the (laughs) kitchen. What are you doing out here, you little urchin? You know, it was that sort of mentality. Now it's the new rock and roll. Everybody wants to talk to the chef where did you get that from? What's that piece of beef? Why do you marinate it for that? What are the spices used in that? Whatever it is, I yeah. spend probably as much time now talking to customers as I do uh, in the kitchen or sourcing new ingredients or running the business. It's it's like a whole, whole new world now. And I think that's the good thing about it. As you say, the bad thing about it is that it's given us this false, false expectation to the next generation of, you know, I should have a I should be a head chef to have a book deal and a TV deal, but I'm time I'm 25. Mm. It doesn't happen like that, you know. It just it's just not going to happen. So that I think that's where it's um, it's really hard to balance expectation of our guys coming from college, coming from you know that as I say the next the next group of people who are going to look to in our restaurants. <laughs> no, it's no, great no. business, isn't it?
0: <laughs> we're making it sound so attractive. <laughs> oh, well, well, how did you get? We'll, we'll stick with the TV for now. So how did you end up on okay. the Great British Menu? You're on with um, Alice Barry as well, weren't you? So yeah, Alice,
1: Alice, and Tommy Parker it was. Um, so that that was a, a really interesting process, really. I, what happened was we, we were – it was a Wednesday night or something in the art school, and, and we had a table booked um, by a local TV company, LA Productions. You probably know them, Colin McEwan and and those guys. And they were – they were actually pitching a, a new uh, series to the BBC to get you no know, to get it funded and, and get it uh, contracted, if you like. And it, it funny enough, it they, they got the funding. <laughs> yeah. It went very well. And and there was a I think it was a table of twelve or something like that. And they had tasting menu and, and Colin was holding court and, and talking to them and and, and they, they they did have a fantastic evening. I was really pleased with it. And then they they asked me to come out and have a chat with them at the end. And it just so happened that one of the guys sat around the table was the head of daytime television and and programming for things like great British menu Saturday morning kitchen um, and it just so happened that he was involved in the in the in the contracting of this thing that Colin was working on and I have to say Colin did his usual uh, Scouse uh, presidential speech about how, the, how it was disgraceful that not enough scousers were represented on uh, TV and all this. You <laughs> he, he must've forgotten about Simon Rimmer and everyone <laughs> and a few others that are on there. But, but basically by the end of it, the guy came and had a chat with me, said, oh, I really love the food. You know, loved loved everything about it, loved the atmosphere, love what you've done here. Great building, daddy, dog, usual chit chat. And he said, I'll tell you what's going to happen. You're going to get an email tomorrow. Um, and I'm going to ask you to do a, a, a VT thing, you know, a, a video to camera for Great British Menu, and also uh, potentially for Saturday Morning Kitchen. And I was just like, oh, yeah, he's had a few wines. He's a- <laughs> Colin's got him pissed, you know. <laughs> um, and sure enough, the day after, I got two emails, and one was from Saturday Morning Kitchen, one was from G- uh, Great British Menu. And in actual fact, I, I was on um, Saturday Morning Kitchen before I did. That went out live. And even though we'd sort of started filming um, Great British went out first so it was quite interesting I did my first national live uh cooking thing before great British menu even went out on air which was which was great and it was it was lovely that I did it with uh, Nigel Howarth as well you probably know from Northcote um and he's been a big uh hero of mine and a a big pal uh for many years anyway so that was a it was a really chilled great thing to do and then from that that led on to um Sunday brunch which we've done two or three times now and uh, we also got the, the semi final. We actually we, we positioned quite nicely, actually, because they asked us to set the challenge for the semi final of Celebrity MasterChef. I don't know if you saw that, which was yes. Martin Bayfield and um, the guy off Made in Chelsea and all that sort of stuff. Yes. And they, they shipped us down to Eva Castle in Kent, and, and we had to set five courses and then mentor each one of the celebs. Yeah. And then we were out of the judging process of that. So that was a fantastic uh you know, experience as well, and that, and that, honestly, the, the effect on the business was just off the scale. It it sort of put us in a in a different category almost. It it, it literally felt the minute that went out on air because it was on a Friday night, like seven thirty eight o'clock prime time on BBC One, and of course, Scraper's British Menu was fabulous as well. But it's on BBC Two, and it's quite a smaller uh, viewing figures. I think Master Chef got something like eight million, and mm. the phone just never stopped ringing for about three or four weeks afterwards we still get people coming now talking about it so it's the power the power of the tv is very very strong as you well know from your experiences now as
0: well so yeah so you, do, you, do you enjoy it i loved it yeah i
1: enjoyed i think do you know what i actually enjoyed the live stuff probably more than the pre-recorded stuff only because it's so repetitive you have to go back and do things Five and six times, (laughs) whereas I like I like the spontaneity. I like I like the chit chat and I like I love Sunday brunch. I I love Saturday morning kitchen and Sunday brunch is very
0: good. Sunday brunch,
1: yeah, yeah. I think think, and it's it's sort of hits the spot for everybody, doesn't it? Sort of quite quite chilled, but you can you don't have to do anything too chefy. It's got to be something really good and really nice, and but it's got to be something
0: that people will have a go
1: at cooking at home as well. So
0: I I, I think. Sorry, I noticed she didn't enjoy him. telling me to take that garnish off the plate on Great Britain.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, oh, that was well. That's a that's a funny story as well. I don't know if Ellis has told you about that, but it, it's um, you know, D- Daniel Clifford is well known in the industry as being quite a a forthright gentleman, should we say, <laughs> and 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 very well respected. You know, he's a two Michelin star chef, and I I take my hat off to him. I always have done, but um, but there was a story behind the scenes was a, a little uh, commie of mine who'd been sent down there well we, we we asked if he could go down on stage and he didn't have i won't go into the gory details but he didn't have a great time and he wasn't treated particularly well and they give him a bit of scouse uh interesting yeah. uh, behavioral technique shall we say and um I, I we me and ellis were chatting before the doors open on gbm saying who do you want as a judge <laughs> and I actually said just before the doors opened, I said I don't mind if it's anybody but I don't want Daniel Clifford and of no, course who was it it opens up and there's Daniel but but you know what we, we had a bit of a, a set to on the first day and a, you know all the scouter jokes were coming out and I I sort of reacted probably a little bit more than I should have done I should have just <laughs> let it wash over but but I'm very proud about our city you know so uh and I had forgotten about the little commie who didn't have such a good time, who, who funnily enough, ended, has ended up as a head chef of a Michelin-side restaurant now. So,
0: oh, that's good. So,
1: you know, he, he's, he's done all right. He's did all right, you know. But, <laughs> but yeah, it was, for me, I mean, he plays a classic pantomime villain. Um, and, and then, of course, the day after, he gives me a 10 for the for yeah. the main course. And, and, and he knew that, and I knew that. And it was just, you know, you have to remember they're making a television show, you know, and it's they have to tell a story during the week, you know, and... Ellis gets his ten with the fish, and then I get the ten with the with the lamb, and then it goes into the final day, and who's yeah. going to get through? And they, they build a jeopardy, don't they? And, oh, and, and, of course, yeah. You know, and it was it was fabulous. You know, and and I, I you know, when I've watched it back, it's it's quite funny. I wanted to bloody murder him at the time, yeah. and it was. You look like you
0: did. They zoom in on your face, don't they? And that's a picture of you. Yeah, I'm sure. like right, and it just looks like you want to kill him. Yeah, yeah. I. They were absolutely right. Yeah. <laughs> The yeah. camera
1: doesn't lie, as they say. Yeah, no, you
0: know. Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, and I
1: didn't think I didn't think it was too bad. Actually, I thought it was just about right. And, you know. Anyway, there you go. But you know, it was, it was fabulous. You know, I'd, I wouldn't wouldn't change it for the world. I think it was great, and you have come away with two friends for life with Tommy Parker and Ellis, and you know, fabulous experience, and it's led on to so many fantastic things. So uh, you know, I'd I'd encourage people to go and do things like that for sure, and push yourself and take yourself out of the comfort zone and go for it, you know.
0: Yeah, worry about it later. Yeah, yeah. Um, if we if we focus specifically on the article, read something there, you said you don't want five or six restaurants, you want this to be Le gavroche of the North. Mm. Uh, would you say that still stands? That's what you still want to do? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's quite interesting, isn't
1: it? Quite topical, yeah. Do you know what? I th- I think the reason, that that's probably a quote from when I... Very, we very first launched the restaurant which is 2014 now so we're we're six in this year six um and and what i wanted i think i've probably touched on it in in what i was saying about building an exemplar and and proving that liverpool can deliver capital city standards and 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 show that we've got the culture of food and drink that i believe a city like ours should have and and you know if if you're going to regenerate a city I think the food culture has to move at the same rate and at the same angle as the regeneration and I've always sort of said that so because I'm a sort of a a, a follower and a disciple if you like of the rue brothers and the and the whole uh, way service runs and 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 the style of food and although it's got my own style of food as we've talked about with my travels you know I, I I still think the Rue Brothers have had more impact on this country in terms of food culture and food development than than any other chef or chefs right. you could mention. And and when you think that, you know, Marco Pierre White, Gordon Ramsay, people like that all passed through the brigade there, um, you know, that they've trained so many amazing people who have then gone on and trained more amazing people and, and it's all sort of stemmed from them and that's why for me the pinnacles of 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 what chefs should be looking for moving forward. Yeah. So, I mean, people still say if you go and you have to visit Gavroche, you know, and, and as a, at least as a one-off experience. But for me, it, I wanted the art school to become that must-visit place in Liverpool. Um, and so, if you like, I wanted to show that not only could we create those standards and the atmosphere and the service and the food and the wine and, and, and how that whole gastronomy thing works, but we could also do it consistently. And I think a lot of brands and a lot of restaurants go wrong in their delivery by not being consistent enough. Now, I'm not saying that we're perfect. I know that for a fact, we're not perfect. But I think we've delivered consistently well over the five, six years we've been open. But when you look at something like the Gavroche, which is 30 plus years, you know, and they're still knocking out amazing dishes. Now, some people will call that old fashioned. I just say it's a timeless classic you know um and i think i think for that reason i i know that if you if you expand too quickly um because we we we've been offered lots of different opportunities over the last five years since we opened um if i'd have taken all of them we'd would be a very big company but i think we would have diluted very much what we what we do um and i think what i suppose what the thing that's driven me all the way through this, I suppose, is the desire to win Liverpool's first Michelin star. Yep, um, and that still remains. That still remains a target. I don't know if we'll ever achieve that. I, I've, some people think we've already got one. Um, I haven't stopped working towards that, and I still think the city both deserves and needs one. It's not just about the vanity of Paul Astley. It's about it's about a city's statement and a, and the culture of the city being recognised nationally. And I, and I think, you know, some people say, well, Michelin's lost its way. Michelin's not relevant anymore. And that tends to be spoken by people who, <laughs> who maybe don't want to follow that, you know. But, but I still think it has got relevance and I still think it is a benchmark. You know, most people say it's a chef's PhD, but I genuinely, genuinely look at this as the city achieving a Michelin star, not just Paul Askew and the art school. Of course, I want it to be the art school and I want it to be driven by me. But I think it's a massive statement from a food tourism and, and food culture development point of view. I think it's it's absolutely what we need. So I think when I made that statement about the art school, that, that would be where it was coming from. Mm-hmm. Uh, moving forward, you, you, well, you saw recently that we'd, we'd done a deal with the Jockey Club to take the art school to Aintree, which is an amazing opportunity. And they've actually redesigned a house on the course using our interior designer, my Uh, vision if you like to literally to put an art school on Aintree as a course and and you know that will happen now in 2021 not 2020 but it it's a fantastic move forward um but of course it's 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 still one that only needs to be operated when there is racing at Aintree so it's not open every day but I think that's probably the first sign of us maybe branching out a little bit we've seen us. Expand into the art school cellars, which I think has been great for us, um, with the the cocktail champagne bar and tasting room downstairs, which yeah, we desperately yeah. needed
0: space-wise. Um, like, well, I love the walkway between the two.
1: Yeah, I think I think that that historic trip down the uh, the old steps and the you know the the servants' roost, if you like, is a yeah. it's a lovely thing to do. Great, but it's a lovely building. You know, I'm yeah, so pleased yeah. with that that space. And then more more recently, we've we've looked at we've opened a wine import company as well. So we've we've got the art of wine going now. So that we've diversified a little bit. But but I, I think I, I still have a mission
0: to finish, as you can hear from what I'm saying. So yeah, yeah, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I know about expanding too quickly. Tell you about that. As well. <laughs> yeah. so, no, I'll, yeah. I'll have to interview you about that one day. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's diff, it's difficult. You have got to adapt. It's it's another it's another ball game. But I think yeah absolutely yeah in, in regards to the restaurant itself actually it was the first time we went on a date me and my partner it was a, our very first date in the six years was worked. it really yeah we, we, well we weren't supposed to be going out at the time because we were working together so we, we we were hiding up here so the um <laughs> but, the, uh, but to have a like i think it was like a seven course tasting at the time i think um, but yeah. Would, yeah. I don't know where else you could you could get that in Liverpool. What what would you see as um, like your not rivals but in the same bracket? Oh, I, I think I think there are lots of um, people doing their
1: own style of tasting menus and and um, and looking to expand on on the gastronomy in the city. I think you know you, you'd probably say uh, I know. For example, Panoramic have just changed their head chef to to go down that road again. Have another pop at that. Uh, I know Rosky on Rodney Street likes to do tasty menus uh, and wine flights and stuff. And I think I don't know about sixty and Carriage Works and places like that now if they're still doing them. But but I think all I would say is I, I, I welcome that. I welcome um, other people expressing themselves and doing. Their versions of tasting—that's what the city needs. You know, it's a bit like we've we've spoken many times about how you know the the diversity in the city and the choice of the city at every level, yeah. Tasting menu level, at Greasy Spoon level, at pizzeria level, at Slim's Chop House Meats, <laughs> pulled pork barbecue, what, whatever that is. We've got to have three or four or five of those that do it really really well, and and you know I, I think. I still think that's what every great city, obviously, would like to be a slightly bigger city and need more of each category. But, but the dream, I think, for me has always been if we could be an exemplar and, and, and a trailblazer, if you like, of setting standards and, and maybe knocking down some of those barriers that we've had from southern journalists and and, and attitudes and you know perception change. I suppose I've been always about, and th- there's nothing that gives me greater pleasure than when somebody comes. From either abroad or from out of town down south or whatever, and they come to Liverpool and they dine with us, and they go, "Wow, I had no idea that Liverpool was like this, and I didn't know that it was this level of gastronomy and 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 that that really gives me the biggest uh satisfaction of all but uh, but I think you know there's still room for more. I think we still need to push more for, as I say, quality for consistency, I think service levels. I think still need to be improved around the city. I think our service level is really strong at the moment. And again, I would never say that we're the done deal because we're not, but, but I I would back our service team and our kitchen brigade every day. You know, I I see what, what we do and I'm, I'm very proud of what we do, but, but that doesn't mean to say there isn't room for more in city. I think, I think I'd welcome that any day of the week. And it's nice to see Ellis coming into Albert dock and, you know, it's nice to see Moray going in there. I mean, Moray on the third, is it their third one now? Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's great to see the success stories and, and, you know, and also what you've done with Duke street, you know, and it's, these are the things that you, you almost are the barometer of, of a city's uh, gastronomic health. If you like, these are, these things wouldn't happen if there wasn't a demand for that and a desire for that. And, and I think there's room for all of us, you know, to do well and let's hope there still is after our,
0: delightful situation at the moment yeah, i think fine dining is is the wrong term um but i don't yeah. there's, there's i think there needs to be more on that sort of i think artisanal independent level if you see what i mean i agree with you the term fine dining is, is sort of old hat and, and
1: and it almost conjures up i don't know people don't seem to like the term fine dining but in the absence of anything else I suppose we refer to it as that i, I prefer to think it was like a gastronomic restaurant or as you say artisan mm-hmm. ingredients done done with imagination and innovation whatever whatever you want to call it but for me the, the the matching of food with the correct wine or the correct cocktail or whatever is is just as important as well so we we focus a lot on the wet side as well you know so it's an experience now isn't it it's not you don't just go for a meal and walk away. It's about the all-round experience, and I think I'm pleased with what the the art school delivers. You
0: know, you know a spot, a spot of axe throwing after um, dessert. That's that's kind of <laughs> the way things are going. Up. So that's a, that's a big thing now. What you're saying about the experiential side of things that's still very culinary um, where you are. where I think a lot of the industry is getting merged into almost like lifestyle with the culinary aspect with it it's a very it's a bit strange i think whereas I yeah, think yours yeah is. i'm not
1: i'm not sure about this um you know entertainment bit at the end or, or or in get for me that's that's somebody else needs to do that and and that's another venue you know i, I think um i don't know I, I, not for us anyway for sure I, I know what you're
0: saying and no i was, I was joking <laughs> <laughs> i knew i knew you were i knew yeah. <laughs> So, would you, would you describe what the art school's food now as modern European or a little bit different? Yeah,
1: I guess. I
0: guess it's well, the the sort of um, the
1: influences that I've talked about tonight. It, I, I actually call it modern international because you know there's massive French influence. Yes, so yes, it's European, but there's also massive Middle Eastern, massive Asian, you know, massive North American and. And it's just it's me. It's not, you know. Yes, of course, there's a lot of classic French influence in there, but it's not all classical at all. And and it annoys me a little bit because I think some of our reviews, sometimes from our southern friends, um, have described as this. <laughs> you could tell the sarcasm in the voice there, couldn't you? Um, has, has been, you know, almost accusing me of being old-fashioned or something. And I I, I don't know. I don't see that. I think. Yes, it's it has classical origins, of course, and we use classical methods of cookery. I'm not I'm not waterbathing everything and liquid nitrogen and all that sort of stuff. But you know, I, I think of food as art. I think of food as as a marriage of of amazing ingredients done in in simple ways, but done in very clever ways and and presented in a very artistic way. And and I don't know, maybe they think I'm I'm old fashioned or what. I don't know, but all I know very busy and very popular. So it,
0: it's um, that, that, you know, I cook for the people in those red chairs behind yeah. me. So. <laughs> no, I think, think, I think things will come full circle as as time goes on. I think very much, maybe like the last five years, everyone's been more going along the lines of casual social. Whereas I think you know you'll start seeing people going back to the sort of the three course menu, and you're I, yeah see it in a few places that are opened.
1: Yeah, I I think you're right, and I think. Um, you know, there's a time and a place for small plates or there's a time for that. And I, I like that style of food. Um, but, but, you know, at the end of the day, I, I'm, I'm setting my stall out at the art school to say, this is what we do. We only do three menus and they're all fixed prices. You know, you do a prefix menu, which is basically three, three courses or two courses, which is designed for a fast lunch or a, or a, a pre-concert, pre-theater meal. Uh, and then we do excellence which is our choice menu Um, and then we do a tasting menu that's it but they're all derivatives of each other because i don't want this huge menu with 40 50 dishes on i want three menus with maybe a choice of four things on each and then the the tasting menu is made up of those dishes in in a gastronomic format and i think i think that's been a big strength for us just sticking to that um you know the old less is more and and focus on the seasonality and the and the quality of the produce and and let it sing because I tell you now you know I keep saying it but Merseyside, people don't realise what's on their own doorstep it's absolutely staggering you know and I've seen lots and lots of places in the world with amazing ingredients but we we stack up really well you know but it's just about singing about that and, and showing people and and letting them see what we have on our doorsteps and uh, you know that that that's a big mission for me as well I've always tried to fly the flag for the local producers and butchers and fishmongers and, and growers you know it's uh, again it's about the identity of a place and about the food culture of liverpool and, and how it's developed so still more work to be done <laughs> how often do you change the menu at the moment well we have four four full changes a year which is the four seasons mm-hmm. um and often we'll have intermediate changes if if for example we're in asparagus season although we won't get to play with the asparagus this year will we um but just for example say the asparagus only lasts three weeks four weeks which it does sometimes then we change a lot of the dishes because that particular ingredient's gone uh the fish dishes change sometimes every day every week depending on what's at the market um so there is constant change and constant stimulus for the chefs which i think is important and it's a constant challenge for me and, and vince my my sue um, but I think it's better that way. And, and every time you change a dish, you see the, you know, the creative energy comes back and, and well, not doesn't leave, but what I mean is the creative energy is increased when a new dish comes on because they're all excited to do plate up something new, do a new method, cook something different, work with a, a salt duck instead of a rack of lamb or, you know, it's just that constant learning and, and constant emerging. And I think that's why I like doing so many competitions with the young chefs and, and developing that way, because we we see that it doesn't just develop that individual, it develops the whole group by doing those competitions. And I think, you know, we often use the competition dishes on the menu to perfect them and make them do repetitive practice. But then often they stay on the menu because they're so good <laughs> and it's hard to take them off, you know. So it's it's constant development and research all the time, you know. So
0: and how much of the produce would you would you say is out of the northwest that you use?
1: Well, what what we always try and do is we try and stick a pin in the in the art school as a map and draw a twenty five mile radius around it, and I'd say probably seventy to eighty percent is is that. I think clearly, you know, we have to buy olive oil and olives and you know wine and stuff from outside of that region, um, and sometimes fish from out of there as well, but but meat, vegetables, dairy, um, herbs, edible flowers. Yeah, I mean, it's just incredible. You know, the, that 25-mile radius is quite spectacular. You know, it's, um, I mean, I remember years and years ago when I first came back from America, 95, uh, and I started work at the Philharmonic Hall as their sort of catering manager and chef. And, um, you know, I'd be phoning up the market to get, just to buy things like aubergine and, and 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 red red pointed peppers and and they go well. You want some of that foreign gear, like do you? Anything other than a carrot and a cabbage, you were looked up looked upon as a lunatic. You know? Whereas yeah, now yeah. they'll grow it to order for you. Know if I say look, I need I I don't know. I'm, I'm having a, I want half a field of lovage, half a field of um, Mexican marigold, or whatever. You know they, they'll grow it and it's there all, all through the, the time it's on the menu. I could never have done that. 15, 20 years ago, you know. Yeah. So it's incredible. And it's still moving really quickly. It's still developing so fast.
0: And then you can make a book out of it.
1: There you go. <laughs> 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 moving nicely on, yeah. Well, I think that was one of the reasons for doing the book, apart from obviously the the, the TV uh, exposure prompted the, the PR machine to say, right, this is the time to bring one out. And they're probably right. If I'm honest, I would have preferred to wait another year or two. But... But I think, you know, we did it. I'm very proud of it. I'm glad we did the the whole chapter about the food heroes and showed about the culture of of, of growers and the butchers, the, the growers, the fishmongers, all that. And I think that's a great statement for for Merseyside and, and I'm proud of the recipes that are in there. And in looking at it now, it's it's two years on. And it looks like I need to do another one really because it, it, it almost feels dated to me now. But I, I think it's still relevant to a lot of people and when they come and visit the art school it it still sells very well and then you know i've been really pleased with it so there probably will be another one at some point but um no, we've got a bit of a job on i think this year first, haven't we? <laughs> yeah.
0: that's it for part one guys hope you've enjoyed it so far as you can hear Paul's a long and illustrious career spanning nearly 40 years in the industry Difficult to fit in one part, so in the second part we'll talk more and we'll talk about both favourite, most influential chefs as well as possibly an unbeatable in the weeds moment. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. If you want to talk more food and drink in between episodes, follow me on Twitter or Instagram at fazmangoes. By clicking the captivate link on my social media pages, it will take you the easy way to subscribe to whichever podcast hosting you prefer. Or check out my website, fastmangoes.com. If you want to learn more about Paul, you can purchase his book, Onwards and Upwards, from many major retailers. Take care, guys, and speak to you all next week.